assessing impact, measuring impact. We have four speakers for you. The first thing I need to say is that if you left a suitcase uh, towards the wall there by the entrance, uh, the Dublin team have moved it to the back for fire safety. So it hasn't been pinched, it's just uh, up on the far corner there. So if I can have your attention now, please, uh, for our first speaker, who is Dr. Gustav Nellens. And Gustav is a senior lecturer at the Swedish School of Library and Information Science. And he's going to talk to us about responsible impact assessment. Thank you. Yes, thank you very much. Yeah, uh, I'm Gustav Nellans. Uh, I am a senior le uh, lecturer in uh, library and information science at, at uh, the University of Borås, and uh, the school is called Swedish School of Library and Information Science. Um, uh, last fall or last autumn, I, I was uh, a visiting scholar at the University of Southern Denmark, and uh, I was there to, to uh, provide them with, with some, uh, uh, doing, uh, helping them and doing some research uh, on bibliometrics and on scholarly publications. And one of the things that I did a lot was to uh, go out to departments and talk to them about uh, what it means uh, uh, using bibliometrics in, in evaluation in different ways. Uh, in Sweden and also in Denmark, we use uh, these models at, at many levels within from the natural level down to the universities, and it also trickles down to, to individual level. And I wanted to talk a little bit about how it works uh, for them. Uh, but also, uh, because it could be quite depressing showing all the problems with using bibliometrics, I wanted to, to provide them with something that they could also use. So I wanted to show how you could use citation analysis without actually looking at the numbers, but rather at relationships in different ways. So together with, with my colleague Evgenius and also uh, Maiva, who, who are uh, uh, at the library and at the, at the research uh, assessment unit, uh, we, we together started to, to develop a, a way of trying to um, evaluate uh, at, at the institute level specifically. And then by, then, by that, uh, trying to follow uh, rules like the, the, the Leiden Manifesto or the DORA assessment, not uh, evaluating individual researchers specifically, but rather at, at a higher level, and also letting the, the, the ones that are ev evaluated also be part of, of the process. So uh, uh, the outline of this talk is that I will talk a little bit about uh, the performativity of the citation culture and, and what, what happens when researchers are, are evaluated and how, how they respond, uh, going back to my, my PhD or dissertation work. Then uh, I, I would like to go back to the drawing board and, and look, look at a little bit what kind of, of relational metrics can we use to actually look at uh, the impact of research uh, uh, at, at an aggregated level. Uh, and the, the goal then is to involve also stakeholders at different levels so that we don't just provide them with numbers, but rather uh, have, uh, helping them to assess themselves by, by using metrics and specifically visualizations. And maybe in the future we will also uh, be able to look at uh, adding societal impact in different ways. 
So, uh, as you all know, I think, and when I worked on my PhD thesis 10 years ago, it was quite novel to talk about the performative nature of citations, that researchers are aware that they are cited, they go look up the numbers in, at that time, Web of Science and maybe Google Scholar and so on. Uh, the age index was, was quite new and, and uh, started to be used in different ways. And therefore, uh, using numbers of citations could be quite mis misleading because people try, in a way, to game the system or uh, more or less uh, uh, because they, they know that they do it, but they, they adapt uh, quite, quite a lot. So it, it creates reflexive actors that, that uh, are, are uh, 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 acting, so to speak, on, on the citation playing field. It is also used, as I said before, at many different levels. Specifically in Sweden, we have a citation-based model that distributes funding. We have had a model, it has been taken away right now, but 20% of the funding to universities is directly based on how they fare in, in the citation, in citation analysis. So, uh, yeah. And of course, on the other hand, saying that using bibliometrics should totally be thrown away is also a bit problematic because the, the numbers are there and, and the information is there in different ways. And it is, it is needed for research policy, for example. It is needed, it is, uh, yeah, you, you, need, you need to have some evidence to work with. And bibliometric data could be one of those sources. It's, the problem is how it is often used. Uh, one example of this is how, how different, when we go to the institutional level, how different departments fare when, when you look at numbers. If you, for example, uh, compare, uh, this is from, from the KTH a couple of years ago, uh, uh, year by year uh, number of publications in different uh, uh, departments. We can see that in computer science, uh, they mostly work with, with conference uh, proceedings. And then this is not something that would be counted in the Swedish national model, for example. Uh, it, also, you can see uh, that, that the number of publications uh, increased a lot, while in the natural sciences, uh, the traditional way of publishing in articles uh, in journals is quite stable over time. In the humanities, it's very varied. The red ones are, are book chapters, which seems to be among the biggest ones, and, and likely, yeah, I don't remember now, but uh, uh, other articles, not, not peer-reviewed articles, which is, could be seen as, as uh, useful material. Also, when we go to the individual level, for example, if you Google the, the terms curriculum vitae and age index, you will, will find lots of PDF documents where the, the author or the researcher puts their age index next to their name, the affiliation, and maybe the, their uh, status in the university, and then they add the number. Uh, we, we know about uh, different ways of gaming the system, uh, both by uh, self-citation and also uh, uh, by coercion by editors who want to increase the impact factor at, at the uh, journal level, as well as citation cartels between journals that, that, make, that starts to cite each other's journals and in that way increase their numbers. So the numbers game is very much the problem here, but I think that looking at and working with citation data in itself is not uh, really the, the issue. It's rather, uh, it's rather how you use it. So when I went to, to the, uh, the, the research groups, I, I, I came to this point well, where I came to a quite depressing viewpoint, so to speak. So I said, should we just bury our heads in the sand or should we just leave it and not use bibliometrics at all? And then I came up with an idea to, to help them, giving them some information that could be useful for them when 
uh, when looking at how, how the research actually is used. They know already the citation numbers because they go to Google Scholar, they go to Web of Science and look at the actual numbers, but could you also look at who is citing you and for what reasons maybe also and, and in what research areas? And in that way, get information that you together with between the, the evaluating uh, uh, actor and, and the ones that are evaluated, you together can look at the information and, and, and uh, have an understanding of what it is, it is about. So I started by showing Oh, sorry, I should just say something about uh, uh, the goal here then was to help the research groups being able to identify what, what kind of uh, research is actually using our work, how, how uh, is it seen uh, from the outside, so to speak, using citation data and, of course, uh, acknowledging all, all the limitations in using citation data from a specific service provider. But that, to a certain degree, at least, can be, be leveled by using different providers. So uh, I, one of the departments I went to was uh, this department of marketing and, and management. And uh, I, before I went there, I just did a, a quick check in the, the, the Chris system, looking at what have they published the, the last uh, five or six years, uh, and identifying uh, about 450 publications. Uh, and and uh, some of them were not uh, peer-reviewed, so I, I took them away. But uh, look, looking at this data, I wanted to see how can I describe how their research has been um, uh, received by others, so to speak? I took, used the pure output interface and got the list that I could, could work with, uh, just put it in Excel, identifying the publications that had a DOI number, because I wanted to do it as quick as possible. Uh, I used the DOIs uh, to search in, in Web of Science for these articles. So from 500 articles, I was now down to about half of them that actually had a DOI and little less that were actually found in, in Web of Science. So I, I have a sample that is, of course, not uh, full, but still, uh, to some degree, a representative sample of, of uh, this department's work. Uh, and in the end, then, I got, got uh, um, a result of uh, over 1,000 articles that uh, had cited the work of this department during these six years, so a very brief, quite brief uh, time frame. And the first numbers, you, uh, the first information, of course, you get is the long list, the 1,100 articles, and you can just sort them in different ways if you use, in this case, Web of Science. Uh, but this information is uh, on the one hand readily available, and uh, on the other hand, reading 1,200 abstracts or titles even is quite a lot, and you don't, it's hard to get an overview of it. So by by creating simple uh, graphs here in, in VosViewers, in VosViewer, using different uh, um, uh, ways of working with the data, uh, looking at different levels, uh, it was possible to, to show to, to this uh, uh, research department what, uh, uh, who, is, uh, who is citing them and, and to, to what degree. And just by showing this slide, they started, and I was standing in front of the screen, so they were starting to become like owls, trying to understand, because it took them like two or three seconds to start to analyzing these images, because they are so, so, to, so visually uh, appealing, so to speak. So we were able to see who has cited the work, uh, the work of this research group. We're also able, of course, to, to look at what journals, and in that way, when we look at journals, we also get some, some hint of what it is about, because the journals often are called what they are about, so to speak. So it was quite easy even to match the, the research groups in, in the department to the different clusters here in this visualization. 
And of course, uh, here, since I was using VOSView, I, I looked at what kind of other level could I look at. I could also look at the organization level to see from what department do, uh, do or what universities uh, do the, the researchers that cite uh, our work, so to speak, uh, come from to, to be able to, to see uh, where do we have the impact. And again, of course, using the, the keywords of the actual articles, we could also see the themes that, that pops out what areas seem to, to, to use this research the most, so to speak. And all of this is very quick. It's, it is about one or two or three hours' work to, to create this, this material. So we were thinking about, could we also use this uh, together with the library and also with, with the research assessment unit at the SDU uh, as a way of, of evaluating research without actually saying you, you are much better than the other group, but rather showing the strengths and maybe where you're not shown so much uh, in this data. So we have st started now a, a second stage, which is a, a case study to, to uh, contact um, uh, departments at different, uh, uh, one in each faculty, one could say, uh, and to, to uh, 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 evaluate if this is a model for, that could be used both for them uh, internally to evaluate their research, but also if the, if the uh, rector's office can use this in, in evaluations bringing a, qualita a qualitative aspect to the evaluation uh, strategy then. And as you see here, we, we start by just inviting them, we get uh, decisions, we get them to be part of it uh, from, the, from the start. Uh, we collect the pub publication data and again go to the department and ask them, is this the information that, or are these the publications that you actually publish? Uh, uh, and, and then uh, it creates uh, the, the graphs or the, or the results Again, uh, going back to, to the department, to, to have them to, to select, in a way, uh, the most relevant graphs and, and the most relevant view to, to work with when we look at their data. And then, in the, in the, in the end, the, the goal is to create an impact footprint that is based on one of the visualizations, and then you should, could be able to work with layers and see. So we have the, the who, who is citing us, but we can also look at where they are cited or from what university, and, and link that together. And that is, of course, a little bit in the future. So right now, we create this, the, these maps uh, independently of, of each other and present them as slides, or even with the VOSVIR interface, we can uh, zoom in and zoom out, or we can use any other uh, uh, analytics, of course. But the goal, then, is to make more like a GIS, a geographic information system, or rather a publication information system, then, where we can show different layers, different aspects of the impact, and, and map them on top of each other. Yeah, right now, the, the, we are quite early in the process. We have contacted uh, uh, the departments, and we are receiving uh, responses. and. Uh, uh, what we see is that we have different, we are, since this becomes a project at the SDU, they need to have some kind of outline of how the work will be distributed over time. And we can see right now, in the early phases, it's a lot of work for the, for the library and also the innovation office. But then, to some degree, uh, we will also in involve the, the uh, departments, and then the department's head would have to put some effort in. So there will be a back and forth a little bit between us and uh, the users. 
Lastly, of course, we don't, we don't need to limit ourselves to one single set of metrics. We can also talk to the departments and ask them, what are you interested in, in looking at? And for example, this is a slide that comes from another project that I'm working on, uh, Data for Impact, where we look at, uh, uh, one part is looking at societal, societal impact, so to speak. And in, in this slide, we show uh, uh, people uh, on Twitter uh, tweeting on, on vaccination in different ways. And the, it's the retweet networks. We can find that there are, in this way, we can see that there are two different groups of, of people that are, are retweeting their material. And when we look at, at the contents, we can see that uh, the right group here, the group to the right are deniers, vaccination deniers that are very critical, and the, the bigger group to the left are non-deniers, so to speak. So we can divide, uh, uh, we can identify uh, clusters and then uh, qualitatively look at what they, they uh, tweet about and then understand what it is about. And we can also, to a certain degree, uh, label the, the users by, by looking at their bios, how they present themselves. If they present themselves as, as researchers, then they here are, are labeled as academic. If, if they uh, call themselves uh, journalists or something like that, they become a, a media personality. And in that way, we, we can label also each user. And uh, by this way, getting some graph information about uh, the content uh, or who is uh, uh, using or tweeting about the work, the work in this case. But we can also then, if we want, through other means, go into the actual content and read it or classify it in different ways. So the idea is to create a set of graphs specifically, or it could also be other kinds of information, but specifically graphs that we interact together with the departments and department heads specifically to evaluate and do the evaluation together. So the expertise is in the library a lot to know how the bibliometric indicators work. And at the same time, the department heads have the expertise of knowing what they actually want to see. And, and the rector at the university, of course, has another vision. So together, we can, we can uh, uh, provide information without uh, nearly at any time using the actual numbers, but rather the relationships. Yeah, I think that's it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, any questions for Gustav? Catriona, shall I, do you want to try this? Thank you. Um, uh, I, it, it seems you're, tr you're trying very, very hard to, to avoid um, people being able to game these yeah. maps. Yeah. Are there any loopholes? Do you, do, you, do you know how these maps can be gamed? Is there, is there any, anything that, that should be looked out for, yeah. any caution? I would say that it is harder to, to, to game how, how you are cited. Uh, of course, you, you can choose to, to, to uh, publish in specific journals, and then you can expect that you would also be cited by people reading those journals. You can also, like, by citing specific researchers, you, you can also expect that they will check their, their citation data and say, oh, there's a new group citing me. Maybe I should look at their work and then cite them back. But uh, I'm not sure that, that you, you actually uh, trip any uh, ethics uh, uh, issues, so to speak, by doing that, because you are linking, linking yourself to, to others. But of course, we are working here with just Web of Science data, and, uh, because I wanted to do something that was very quick. 
so by, by just using one database, of course, uh, I, I'm limiting myself a lot, but we could use cross-reference data, for example, since we still have the DOIs, for example, and that would be much wider. And by look, uh, trying to, to find other persistent identifiers to uh, identify the works, even the ones that are not maybe peer-reviewed but uh, are, are published in different ways, you can add to that also. But you will never have a complete overview. But still, yeah, I think, yeah. So would you apply it to data site uh, DOIs as well, data sets? That, that would be yeah. uh, as simple as this, uh, just finding the... Uh, because this should also be done maybe by, by librarians, research librarians, that maybe aren't working with these tools every day, so they need to have some kind of template that they work with, and also time frame, how much time can we actually put in to create something like this. So it's always uh, uh, back and forth a little bit, but it's a lot more than just showing the numbers, I would say. And yeah. Hello. If if the, the goal is to measure the impact of research, one way is to measure by publications. What about measuring the impact by conferences like this? And I mean when someone, not, not counting the number of conferences, no. but the impact inside of a conference. And I'm thinking, for example, to a, a researcher in clinical studies presenting to a conference of 5,000 general practitioners. How yeah. do you measure that impact? Absolutely. If we can find a way, because we work with algorithms here, so we need to, to make the, our computers being able to identify something. It could just be that they have presented there, but there could also be the, the bus, the, the Twitter bus, for example, or uh, articles that have been written in, in um, uh, professional uh, journals about the conference and so on. But we need some kind of... of uh, of uh, w way to identify the data, and of course that is a little bit uh, limiting. But I'm working, for example, with, with uh, citations and clinical guidelines for, as one way of looking at uh, uh, the, uh, the impact of research one step uh, towards the, the, the clinic, even though we don't come down to the clinic, we know w what is uh, proposed to be used. And then again, maybe it's not the numbers, but actually which guideline provider is citing our work and to what degree and so on, but not the numbers in themselves, but rather, yeah, more information about that. Uh, I have one, actually. I was struck as ever by the quality of the visualizations. They're all very striking, the graphs in the charts. Um, you mentioned at the end that library understands the bibliometrics and the department can do the interpretation, but what are the skills and tools that you need to actually deliver the the um, you know the visuals yeah. briefly. Uh, my hope would be to only use openly available data and working with Crossref, for example, and of course either knowing some programming skills and, and doing this in Python or, or whatever uh, programming language you have, or using the available tools as Vosphere, for example, which which can use uh, uh, very different data sets, uh, and you can even create your own data sets to to uh, show, show with with the software. So you need, you need some source of data, of course, but more and more the openly available data sources are, are, are there. So I think that in, in the future we could use it actually, anyone could be able to use it if they only have some skills and maybe some templates showing what to do and some good rules of thumb, what is meaningful and not meaningful, because that is one, one of the problems of interpreting these maps sometimes. Is this, what does this really say? And there, there is uh, some competence that needs to, to come in also. Yeah. So. Maybe you'll get some funding for a toolkit or something. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks a lot, um, Gustav. Thank you very much. So next speaker, um, Maurice von der Feisten.
Innovation Manager at Vrij University Amsterdam, and uh, Maurice is going to talk to us about how research might influence policy on global societal change. Challenges, over to you. Yeah. So, uh, thanks for, uh, for having me. Um, and where is the clicker? Yeah, it's here, over here. So this talk is about uh, where I try to uh, demonstrate what, how our research is influencing uh, the global goals uh, from the talk from the, uh, what we heard yesterday evening. Um, and this is a proof of concept uh, where we also quickly uh, put this thing together uh, to see <coughs> uh, how, this, how does uh, this communicate uh, to policymakers um, and, uh, and other stakeholders. Um, if you, uh, yeah, people are making a picture. Uh, if you follow that link, it will direct you to an interactive uh, um, dashboard, and you can play around with it uh, yourself uh, during the meeting or, or later on. Uh, <coughs> so first about me, a little bit. Uh, innovation manager at the uh, Library of the Vrije Universiteit in Amsterdam. Uh, my topics there are scholarly communication, open science, and research intelligence, um, and, the, and the, the cross sections between all those areas. Um, and on, on the future roadmap, I have topics like nano publications, blockchains for science, and uh, library uh, IA. But if you are more familiar with that than I am, please uh, contact me so I can update my knowledge about that more. So that's my pitch for that, uh, that part. Um, so every story has a beginning, and uh, our story begins in 2015. Uh, this is the other university. This is the Radical University of Amsterdam, the, the, well, the University of, of Amsterdam, and we are from the Vrije Universiteit. Um, and there, it started with a big uh, riots from students and uh, teachers uh, um, against the performance delivery culture that, uh, that we've created over the years in the Netherlands. Um, and uh, it sparked a discussion throughout all Dutch universities uh, to think differently about uh, not more, any, any more measuring uh, the citation counts and uh, age index, but also the, the teaching hours and as such. As such. So over the years, uh, also in, in, in line with that, uh, several documents appeared. Uh, the metric tide, probably you already know. The DORA was mentioned also yesterday. Uh, you have a European report on, on uh, next generation metrics, et cetera. Here in the Netherlands, we are uh, trying to figure out what the knowledge ecosystem is um, and, and see how, how um, knowledge from, from universities is delivered to society. Um, and in that line, we are trying to uh, um, yeah, the, the, the European Commission has, has uh, set, set new goals to uh, shift funding, the funding model towards mission-driven research, uh, where, where the global goals are, are uh, the main drivers for that. Um, and it's interesting if you can tap into that knowledge, if you know where, uh, what, what partners you can find in Europe who are working on a multidisciplinary research, um, you, you can uh, make, make better collaborations. Um, so that's what we uh, try to do. So we had several questions that we asked. Uh, that's uh, how can we uh, show societal impact uh, uh, on, on uh, globally relevant topics? Well, um, those societal uh, relevant topics, uh, what are those? Uh, we could pick and choose from several. So you had the European uh, Commission uh, set uh, societal challenges, but there was also from the UN, uh, the, society, uh, the, the SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals. And uh, luckily, we picked that that out for our 
our demonstrator, and um, it, it turned out to be um, uh, working fantastically. Um, and then other questions was, <clears throat> okay, so what, what research can we find on those topics that we, uh, that we identify? Uh, clean water, uh, climate action, what kind of research are we doing there? And the other question is, um, how is that research influencing policy back again? So we have a circle on, on uh, policy circle. So evidence-based policy making, uh, you, can, you can show. Um, and also the efforts of universities uh, participating in that. Um, so this, uh, I did this with, uh, with the Aurora network. Uh, that's a new network of universities from uh, where uh, the VU is a participant in. Um, and what we try to do is um, to figure out uh, what, what, are, what universities are strong in what kind of SDGs um, and what are we doing together? Uh, how, is the, how does that look together? So uh, I did this not alone, with a group of bibliometricians. Uh, we worked, uh, uh, well, regularly uh, on it, uh, online as well. And what we did is uh, we took the um, keywords from um, the targets and indicators uh, from the policy document from the UN and created 17 queries for that. Um, and then we put it in, uh, we, we searched it in Scopus, then put EIDs in SciVal, the DUIs in Altmetric and in Paywall to get uh, the uh, performance data, mention data and uh, open access data, put it all together and made a uh, diagram of it. Well, this is uh, how, it how it looks like uh, when you select those, put them in SciVal and get the data out. This is Altmetric, you probably have already seen it. Uh, and then you get rows and rows and rows of numbers. Um, it doesn't look pretty, so you have to make it pretty. And we used um, Power BI. It's a, it's a tool you can download online, it's free. Uh, you can dump the data in and drag and drop uh, the columns on, on every uh, thing you want. Uh, it's a little bit like Tableau, uh, but uh, it's, it's uh, user-friendly. Uh, and uh, uh, yeah. And it's interactive, so uh, the diagrams uh, change when you click on, uh, on things. You can see the distribution of, of the other parts uh, when, you, uh, when you use it. Um, and this is a bubble diagram. I'll explain it uh, to you later on. So what we see here, um, uh, this is the, the main uh, diagram where uh, from the, the, well, in the UK you have the REF, in the Netherlands you have the SEP, uh, the Standard Evaluation Protocol. Uh, on the uh, left side, you have uh, the research performance and the uh, uh, right side, the societal attention. And on the different uh, rows, it's uh, the products you have uh, created for research and products you have created for society. Uh, and I put society on wh wh how many of those research documents have you put in in into open access. And the other one is um, about research excellence, uh, the, that's the top 10% of uh, most cited journals, so that's not, not publication articles yet. Um, and, um, and this is, uh, uh, how, what, is the, what is the reach of those uh, documents into policy? Um, and policy documents that can be uh, from the, the World uh, Bank, uh, the World Health Organization, and IPCC, uh, the Food and, uh, Food and Agriculture Organization, uh, national governments, etc. Uh, it's, um, it's data from Altmetric, so it's a little bit uh, Anglo-Saxon biased. Um, and um, 
Well, from those, you can see at the top uh, left, uh, so it's 3,470 publications uh, for those two SDGs that I've selected, Zero Hunger and uh, Good Health and Wellbeing. You can see that we found more publications for Zero Hunger, but that is not, does not mean that uh, we, we are better in, in that or, or worse, because um, <coughs> uh, we just used keywords and maybe we used uh, less keywords for uh, um, uh, good health and well-being. Um, and uh, you can see here uh, in the middle the circle of the distribution of those publications in, in, the, diff in, the, in the Aurora network. Um, and here you can see that the, how the distribution of those papers are uh, in, the, in the top 10%, and it's, and it's equal. So you have the average uh, is, is um, uh, 43%, well, and maybe uh, zero hunger is 41, and, and, uh, and good health and well-being is 44%. And it also accounts for, for this. And uh, you see, for example, here uh, in policy documents that there, is, uh, that there are more uh, citations if, uh, in, in policy from, uh, from the good health and well-being uh, papers. Um, and uh, when we, uh, well, you, you've seen, when we take the, the, the lower uh, um, um, indicators, put them on two axes, so you have here the, the axis, uh, uh, the horizontal axis is uh, the top 10% most cited journals. And so that means uh, in, 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 in the old traditional way, it's research excellence, what we call them. And then uh, we have societal attention and we focus only on the, on the papers uh, on the, uh, that are cited uh, in, in policy. And you can see the, make a distribution on, uh, see, the, see the SDGs in context to each other. And you see that for these uh, nine universities, for example, you have climate action there that's uh, doing excellent research. Um, and uh, you have uh, Zero Hunger is also doing excellent research. So 40% of, of the publications are in the top 10%. So that's also beautiful. Uh, and there you have good health and well-being. Also similar um, uh, numbers. Um, and, and that means that uh, if you see the uh, blue dotted line, uh, those SDGs are, are above the total average of the university network uh, of all papers, also outside the SDGs. So that means also, uh, well, in, in other areas. Um, and you see then uh, what kind of research is, is lacking behind in those universities. Uh, and for policymakers, this is interesting. Uh, should we focus more on those to get those also above the line of, of the university uh, average, uh, or are we using these as a strong as 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 our as a pitch to poli uh, to uh, to national uh, um, funders to see say this is these are the SDGs where we are focusing on, uh, but that's for them to do. Um, so what you also can see is that we have put more uh, qu four quadru quadrants. So you can say that. The top right uh, part is, is, uh, are the strong SDGs, and we are doing research that is excellent, and we are reaching policymakers uh, with, that, with that research. Uh, and the other part is, um, uh, we could say that, that are opportunities. So we're doing excellent research, but we are failing to reach policymakers to um, hand over our research and use that in their policy. Zooming into uh, zero hunger, uh, we're flipping the chart, pivoting the, the table now, so you don't see uh, SDGs, but you see now universities, and we selected just one, zero hunger, uh, and you can see 
uh, that uh, East Anglia, University of East Anglia, is, is doing, uh, creating excellent uh, research and, uh, and uh, doing uh, well on, on, the, on, on the societal impact for policymaking. And like I said, the altmetric database is biased towards uh, Anglo-Saxon uh, universities. So, um, uh, and, uh, well, what can I show you more? Uh, zooming into uh, zero hunger, you can see what kind of policy sources we uh, are targeting. And uh, luckily, Food and Agriculture Organization is, is, the, is the one that's citing the most of those papers. So uh, papers about zero hunger are targeting, well, actually the right policymakers. Um, and there's more data in there, like news stories, tweets, etc. Um, well, this is a, also a nice overview, like uh, you did with the uh, Voss viewer. It's very nice and easy tool to use uh, to see what, what kind of topics that we are uh, targeting uh, in this university network, uh, and that may differ for, for each university, of course. And this is uh, the, also the, the author network, and you see it's, it's uh, throughout the university network. Those authors know each other very well, and, and I will show you another picture for another SDG where it's less well connected and there are also opportunities to, uh, to gain uh, when you are in, in a university network. So um, the user benefits because we created this, this proof of concept and we, we uh, presented this uh, and we asked people um, how can you possibly use this um, and the grant officers uh, said I can use this tool to quickly map the research expertise in the Aurora network and align uh, them with the funding opportunities targeting for the different SDGs. And uh, the policy advisor said, um, uh, well, I can show off my university uh, towards those uh, strong SDGs that we are uh, working in. Um, um, and also, uh, perhaps, in, in the opportunities uh, quadrants, you saw that uh, there is excellent research done but then reach uh, the right policymakers, get, get them on, on the table. It's like uh, what we've uh, done here. Also, we can see this is uh, for SDG 11, um, sustainable cities, um, where you clearly can see that uh, the view is uh, doing, uh, re reaching policy very good, and uh, Gothenburg is, is, um, is doing excellent research in there. So what you try to do, thanks, is um, try to connect researchers from Gothenburg and tap into the uh, policy network from the researchers in, in the VU. Um, wasn't there a picture about that? Oh, sorry. And the grant office can uh, show, uh, the, connect the different uh, hubs that are not connected to each other uh, because it's a multidisciplinary research um, uh, um, uh, targeting those SDGs. Um, connect, connect those research areas to each other and uh, uh, find better collaborations. Oh yeah, this was the, the other one, find partners. Um, so for example, here in the VU, you have professor and he's, he's targeting a lot of uh, policy documents. So in what we need to do now, what we're currently in working in the process is uh, to increase uh, the data quality or the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the model that we are uh, basing these queries on. Um, so we need to improve the precision and recall. Um, this is the process, how we do this. Uh, I will spare you the details, but um, uh, if you can check the, the, the slides later on. Uh, 
and uh, please, uh, if I'm wrong in, in any, any way, please help me uh, making it right. Uh, it has to go through several iterations to improve, uh, and it increases uh, the... Uh, and for, for, uh, for this uh, process to, to work and to, for the data collection, uh, it's, it's, uh, we did this uh, for, for, uh, for this proof of concept uh, manually. It took uh, 40 hours to collect all the data. Uh, and now we've, um, in the network, we was a developer, and we're trying to uh, automate all these uh, things now. Um, this whole process of data collection, but also use that data collection to improve the next uh, iteration of queries. Uh, also, we played with um, machine learning uh, uh, classification models, where you can uh, insert uh, plain text, and then um, it gives you back in which SDG is, it is um, uh, the text is related to, and that could be helpful because we are now using queries in in Scopus. But if you want to broaden it, for example, use it in Pure, uh, it's better to use a machine learning model because it also tracks text the 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 papers that are in in arts and humanities and uh, etc. So thank you for your attention. Um, if you want to join the project or uh, help me with, with, uh, with the iteration of queries, please send me an email. Uh, I will tap you in uh, and, uh, um, well, um, and, and learn more about it. So that's it. Thanks. Any questions? Thanks. Any questions or observations from the floor? Go on, don't be shy. Uh, oh. um, how much do you think you'll be able to uh, focus on individual citations of articles rather than journals? And how much is there a concern that it's not about, it's not, about not saying that this work is good and influential, but by focusing on those very traditional metrics that mm. you are potentially losing out the impact in um, the countries where it matters most. Um, and the direct, so perhaps the ones that aren't necessarily in the high impact journals, but are used on the ground, um, you know, in some country or policy area. Is, is there, I, I'm worried that it sort of helps create that echo chamber which continues to sort of support up the sort of uh, global north perspective on sustainable development goals and how do you capture what's really going on in the global south? Well, thank you for the question. Um, yes, it is, uh, it's mainly focused now on, on publications and it's a whole publication-centric uh, uh, model. Uh, and true, uh, if, if we, we, the data is there for, for having uh, citations for uh, individual articles, of course, uh, uh, but um, uh, it, it's, it's still focusing then on, on uh, publication. If you want to reach real impact, uh, you have to measure thing different, things differently. For example, um, uh, research projects and the geolocation of those research projects, for example, uh, or maybe using, I'm just thinking out loud, right? Um, uh, or, or using that uh, classification model, and there are classification models uh, on, on GitHub uh, where you can uh, use plain text uh, and to filter through those projects, for example, that are that are uh, that are doing that are working. So to classify them on the SDGs. Um, so that's that could be a solution. 
and uh, could be in there, but yes, indeed, uh, I, like I said, uh, input is very welcome uh, because this is a proof of concept and uh, um, if, if people have more ideas to, uh, to improve this, this model, to have a, more, a less uh, northern, western European uh, focus on, uh, on this, it will be very helpful uh, for, uh, for also other universities in the rest of the world. Thank you. Thank you. Any more questions? Okay, thanks very much, Maurice. Uh, so, next speaker is Liz Allen. Um, Liz is Director of Strategic Initiatives at uh, F1000 and also a visiting fellow at King's College London. Uh, Liz is going to update us on credit. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Martin, and thank you for inviting me to speak today. Um, I'm kind of hoping to follow a, what I think is quite a positive um, sort of direction with impact. I've been working um, with the impact agenda um, for 15 years. I used to work at the Wellcome Trust, and I was head of evaluation there. So I'm really involved in research metrics. I've been involved in kind of, you know, shaping what kinds of things we want to know about the research that's been funded and, and done in universities. Um, and what I've discovered is kind of how negative it all tends to be and how there's lots of doom and gloom and uh, for good reason but actually it's really quite nice to see I think there's been a bit of a turning point in the last couple of years where people are trying to be more positive and instead of coming up with all the challenges and why we can't do these things and how bad it is let's try and do something about it then and I've always had that mentality so this is a project that um, it isn't really anything really to do with F1000 although F1000 um, are uh, kind of adopting the principles involved in it, and my colleague Chris is sitting in the audience if you want to find out a bit more about F1000, but we're basically a, a publisher and we do lots of, use technology to do lots of services for science and things, but I'm going to talk about this project which I've been involved in and I'm still involved in now, um, which is a more cross-sector kind of um, open project. So um, I'm just going to take you through the actual, how it came about, what it is, and how it's being used, and, and where we are with it. Um, can I just get a quick show of hands if anyone's heard of the credit taxonomy? Okay, it's quite a few. I know it got an airing at Ar the Armour meeting in Belfast last week, so if anyone was, I don't know if people have doubled up on the conferences, but um, yeah, and it's had a, had a lot of airing. It's been going since 2012, but it's certainly not a new concept. So I'm gonna take you through a bit of the origins and, and these kinds of um, sections I've just described. So, so basically, um, the concept of authorship is, is quite an archaic concept. People are authors, certainly on, on research articles, but we've for years captured the different contributions that people have made, and sometimes that puts you in the author list, sometimes it doesn't put you in the author list, sometimes it puts you in an acknowledgement box. But actually, we could do a lot better. There's lots more information that actually collected, specifically focusing on the scholarly published output. I'm, that's what I'm focusing on particularly here. But actually thinking about research outputs more generally, loads of people make contributions and it's way more than being an author in a certain position on an article. So um, it just seems like a really old fashioned concept to kind of still rely on first author, last author, where you are. And there's so much more we could do information is already being written and captured on an article, but it was traditionally has been in a really unstructured, unusable, unhelpful format. So it's a key, key piece of metadata that has just been missing, and I think what this project's trying to do is actually make sure we can use that information that we already have that will help lots of people. 
I always show you this article, it's, um, this slide rather, it's really, out of, it's really kind of out of date, although it's not out of date when you look at it. Um, it's from 2005, um, but it's basically looking at, there's lots of game playing around authorship roles. Um, it's really important to, to be an author and to be listed on an article that you've uh, contributed to, um, but there's, it doesn't really tell you very much. It's not very usable and actually we could do a lot better. And I came to this project when I was at the Wellcome Trust in about 2010. It's, it first raised its head, um, and in 2012, we started to do something about it and develop this taxonomy. Um, but this is not a new issue. It's been an issue um, for authors and, and a lot of um, journal editors and publishers for a long time in, in terms of that it's, it's a really old-fashioned concept. We need to do something about it. But there hasn't really been a push, and it's a cross-sector thing because it, the use cases are cross-sector. They're for researchers, they're for funders, they're for institutions, they're for publishers. There's loads of reasons why we could do much better at capturing information. So two of the key things... Um, you know, the authorship doesn't reflect contributions. It doesn't support accountability and transparency when you just have a list of people without really knowing who did what. Um, and then there's lots of sort of things happened in the way that we author. Lots of game playing, pressure to publish, um, and team science is coming across in lots of different disciplines. Um, and you see that the demise of the lone author, in particularly in the life sciences, which is where I've tended to work, and it isn't quite the same in different disciplines, but in the life sciences and a lot of the physical sciences, there is very rarely any single authors. There's very rarely a small number of authors as well. So I'll show you an example in a moment. Um, this is some data from PLOS, um, Public Library, uh, a Library of Science. Across all their journals, or these are the six, some of the six big ones, um, including computational biology, genetics, pathogens. This is an upward trend in the number of authors, and you don't need to worry about the, the data, but basically... And actually, I get really a bit annoyed with this chart. I should, I should stop showing it, because I'm a bit of a data pedant, and the, the y-axis isn't the same on each chart. But anyway, it's an upward trend. So pretend you haven't seen that. I just, just look at the upward trend. But its number of authors um, on articles has increased. And this is a CERN paper. This is classic. So this is a physics paper. There are over 2,000 authors on there. There's actually nearly 3,000 authors on there um, from 169 different institutions. And this is an extreme example. But actually, there's loads of really in in interesting information on there. And I haven't used the Voss Viewer kind of thing. But it would be really interesting to plug this kind of data into those kinds of tools and just look at who's working with who, um, you know, the different roles. And the interesting thing on this one, the first author is actually a consortium in itself. So that's kind of interesting. So there's actually probably tons more authors on this paper. Um, and it doesn't mean that, um, who, uh, and often it's in alphabetical order, so it doesn't really mean anything by first, last author. There's all kinds of different disciplinary um, protocols and the ways d d disciplines kind of require authors to be listed. So it's kind of a bit of a mess. And, but there's tons of really useful information there that has just not been made available to us. Um, and then there's kind of a load of other practical things. Now, I, I've sort of, th the older I've got, the more practical I'd rather do something than nothing. Um, there's a lot of really good reasons why you, we could use this information. Um, back to the, co the topic of this session, we really kind of would be great to know who's done what and, and let researchers get credit for work that they've done, regardless of whether they've managed to be first or last author, for all the reasons that I've just described. It's really difficult for an early career researcher, for example, to get a first author paper. And we shouldn't really be using first author as a proxy for how much work they did anyway. It could be that they produced the data that has been the major thing that that research piece that's been published has been used for, and has, it might be the data that lives on, not the actual the way that the paper's been crafted and published in a particular place. 
So it's really important to think about how we get more, more credit for people who've done different things. We know that there's loads of game playing. One of the practical things that I know publishers are looking at now, and there is some movement in this space, with, with tools like Publons and, and, and where you acknowledge who, who's done the peer reviewing and things like that. If you know what expertise and what role somebody has, it could help you actually know that you can find a data scientist or you can find a software engineer. And we have that precision on the data. If we capture that information in a structured way, you might be able to find someone who perhaps could lead a research project or be a good collaborator for you or do a great bit of peer review for you. So there's a really wealth of information that if we just were a bit more sensible, we could capture it. Um, and then we don't have the space limitations. It's not authors, it's, it's important to have criteria when, when you're responsible for a piece of work that's been published and accountability, that's really important. But actually, we don't need to worry too much about reducing the number to a certain amount. We can have information on a piece of published work that's digital and trackable and has its own identity. So we, we can do things differently and use technology to support this. So in 2012, there was a workshop held in collaboration with Harvard University. It was the Wellcome Trust um, when I was there with Amy Brand, who was at Harvard University then, leading the um, faculty office. So she was looking at how this might help um, in tenure decisions, there were, there were lots of librarians there, societies, um, and a lot of um, journal editors, particularly in the medical area initially, because there's a lot of issues with transparency around authorship, and a lot of the authorship disputes go on, particularly in some areas where, um, in, the, in the life of medical sciences particularly. So we had a workshop. To cut a long story short, we came up with a taxonomy over a couple of years, and we tested it out of 14 roles. This is credit. Credit stands for the contributor role taxonomy. So it's just a, it just happens to be a word. I wasn't there when they came up with the word credit. And I'm not always sure that it's quite right because it's about, for me, it's about transparency and recognition and not just about credit. It's about real practical reasons to use it, but it just happens to fit the, fit the acronym. So, it'll, so it's stuck. Um, and this is the taxonomy. Um, the roles, don't worry about the detail, you can have these slides as well so they're all accessible. This is all online. Um, the roles are the 14 roles on the left side, um, and they're not by any stretch of the imagination for all time. We've put this out as a, it's being used now, I'll show you who's using it, um, it's, but it's the catch-all. They're kind of higher level categories, better than author and, and you did writing. It's much more than writing, it's more than you know the data, um, software, investigation, project supervision we have in there, funding acquisition, and we tried to appease and come to some consensus across this cross-sector group as much as we could. And it was initially tailored for the life and, and physical sciences. Um, and in the explanations, you can add more to make it a little bit more nuanced for different areas. We haven't really applied it too much in outside of those areas. You could probably cope with it, but um, there might be another version at some point. But at the moment, this is being used, and most people are kind of quite... We haven't had any real issues with it. I think most people would rather have something than what existed at the moment across different journals. So how it works is when... A, you have this taxonomy. When you submit something to a, a journal, for example, and it's been very focused in the life of medical sciences journals at the moment, when you submit something, there's a submission form for your article, and it asks you who the authors are. And typically, there hasn't been anything that's structured in terms of who did what. And that, at that point, this kicks in, and there's a the, the different publishers use it in a different ways, and they ask you to which of these roles each of the authors did. When there's a huge number of authors, obviously challenging, but then in the current system, you're always supposed to account for those authors anyway, so it's not really that difficult. If you've got 50 
2,000 authors, you have to be supposed to say what they did anyway. So what we've done is just put a taxonomy around that. So take that edge case out, but actually most people, who use, when, when it's there, it's being used. Um, some journals make it mandatory now, so you have to use this taxonomy. Previously, you would have written free text in an acknowledgement box, who did what, and you can't use that information. So um, that's what we've, we've done. Um, a lot of journals now actually um, using it. Um, and there's also been at the University of Glasgow, if people know Val McCutcheon, she's really keen on using this to sort of start thinking about team building within universities and letting people have more recognition for their roles. Um, we've also been talking to ORCID as well about having links to um, the ORCID profiles, you know, the system, so you can actually push what people did on certain articles to that, but we're not quite there yet. Um, and it's been endorsed now by a lot of kind of really senior publisher in the publishing world. So this was in um, PNES um, paper a couple of, I think it was last year, um, basically to support research integrity. So the use cases is really important. This is a step forward. It might not be perfect, but it's a really good way to bring transparency to the publishing process for journals, for um, publishers who really need ways to make sure that the, the work that they've published is, is solid and there's accountability for those authors who've contributed to that. Um, DORA, that's been mentioned quite a lot throughout this conference. Um, I think this is really important. This is the declaration for you know, more holistic research assessment. Um, and they've said this is a really good way for people to be at least, you know, some of the roles that they do, their role and their contribution to be elevated. And it's not just about what you publish, it's about what, it's about where, uh, sorry, it's not just about where you've published, it's about what you've published and what you've contributed. And a system like this, albeit a starting point, allows you to, you know, be a bit more, provide a bit more transparency around that when you're applying for grants, when you're applying for tenureship appointments. Um, this was in the Academy, UK Academy of Medical Sciences report last year. They've endorsed it as a really interesting way um, to support team science. So a lot of researchers, a lot of group um, work, again, some of the work that Maurice showed as well. Some, there's a lot of big collaborative work projects going on. In fact, in fact, both the previous speakers showed that actually a lot of early career researchers get hidden um, within the contributor list, and they, um, it, it's not an incentive where you know to, to actually join those big teams when actually your contribution could be massive. So it's a really nice way to um, provide more transparency to roles. Um, so a couple of, I'm just going to show a couple of examples of how it looks. So PLOS and F1000, we both use, we use it across all our publishing outlets. Um, so for example, here's a PLOS paper um, on the um, interface that you see if you go to PLOS. This is PLOS one, I think. This is just a random paper I picked. Um, got the authors. And then you see, using that taxonomy, you see what that author did. And the same happens for every single author you click on that. So it's actually structured in the XML data. You can capture that. You can use it. And then they've listed it another way. You can see it in two ways. They've, they've really, PLOS are really keen on this. Um, and prior to implementing the credit taxonomy, which is a 14-role taxonomy, they had a five-role previously, and they switched it out because they thought this was more comprehensive, and they've just done that. They've had no kickback at all from authors. Authors just do it. F1000, we do the same. This is our, our welcome open research platform. Um, we capture it there as well. You can see that's just one author. We, again, list it when you, you can open the box and you can see what, who did what. And the really interesting thing, I'll just show you, is actually how you can use that information. So we've been working with um, these bibliometrics. They do a lot of bibliometric work. Anyone in this field will know these two, Cassidy and, and Vincent. Um, and they've been looking at what do middle authors do, because that's kind of the issue that we're really looking at here. Um, I'll flip through these really quickly, but you can see that actually 
don't worry too much about the, the bar, bar distribution, but basically, the really interesting thing, you get a lot of people saying, oh, first authors, last authors, they guest authors, they didn't really do a lot. Um, actually, what we're seeing from this analysis is first authors actually do do a lot. They've contributed, and you can obviously pick more than one role. They've done lots of different things. And last authors tend to do the supervisory funding acquisition role, which is kind of what you'd expect, but it's actually nice to see this information, and I've never, until we've started to do this, seen this in any systematic way. Um, and you can see that the middle authors are actually doing a lot of the data curation, the validation, the really important groundwork that's actually fundamental to a piece of work. And now we're starting to get things like DOIs around the data sets or the software and research outputs have their own life. It's really great because you can now link individuals who've done these roles to those outputs. And it might be those things that actually have the life beyond the paper. So it's really important. What Cassidy and Vincent are doing as well is doing a lot of gender analysis around that, which is also really interesting. They've looked at you know, where women, which roles women tend to do, and, and men, and you know, just splitting it and looking at um, seniority and early career stage as well. So it's a really interesting way to look at you know, how people are um, contributing to science and where their roles are. So just my last slide, really. So the main thing I wanted to do today is just raise awareness of the project, um, the fact that if you see it, you know what it is. Um, it's starting to be used. It would be great if more people kind of talked about it and tried to use it. Um, we're actually seeking some resource at the moment to, to have a community manager, because it's not owned by anyone. I'm kind of managing it in my part-time with a couple of other people. Um, just trying to keep the project going. We've had it's grown on its own on its own merit, really, because people say actually it's a really practical step. It's not perfect. We can evolve it, but actually we're just getting people to use it in in this in a system. Um, it's a piece of metadata, really, that sh it should be linked to scholarly output, but it could be linked to other things. There could be other versions in the future, um, but the main thing is we're getting it into the structured XML of an article, so you can actually use it in a ways in the ways and into the tools that you, you the two previous speakers have both shown. So watch this space, really. Find out more here. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Liz. Um, any questions for Liz? <sighs> There's one at the back there. Where's the squashy cube thing? Oh, so I'll take it. <laughs> this will be more efficient. Watch your head, sir. As you said, you do the work now mostly in the life sciences. Um, we just had a workshop at the University of Graz talking with researchers there from basically across the spectrum. And the, the ordering of authors is staggering, depending on the discipline. Really with the most important last, or just by alphabet, etc. cetera. Um, so first question is, do you in, intend to extend it to other fields? Um, because now it, it's also mostly articles, but I mean, there are still a lot of monographs being published. Um, and the second question is, how do you connect with the library world? Because we have a huge disconnect there with the cataloging part in the library. Because we have a rule book that says, catalog at least one author, and that's the first one, and that's it. And that completely ignores how scientific disciplines work. And I think something like credit might help there if you have such a taxonomy and it's more employed. You can say, okay, if he has this category, then please use this author and don't just go for the first one. 
Okay, that's the second question. Wow. I haven't really thought about that. It's not like, I mean, this is my first LIBOR conference. I'm amazed how forward-thinking and amazing it all is. So that's a fantastic question. I, have, I don't know. I'd love to work with some of you guys to think about how to do that. Um, but it totally makes sense that if authors is kind of an archaic concept for the research world, possibly is in some ways for some of the, um, you know, other areas and how to take that forward. So I have no answers to that at all. That was a really good question. It'd be good to talk about that in the break. Yeah, yeah, thanks. The first question, yeah, totally. And we do see, so Elsevier are looking at this, and I think they've rolled it out on quite a lot of their journals that aren't life sciences, because it's kind of much better than what they currently have anyway. Um, monographs is a different issue, because the publishing system for monographs is not as connected as, um, you know, obviously an article journal publication submission system is quite, you can use it within a structured technology interface or manuscript submission system. I don't think it's as advanced for monographs that we, but you could put it in there. There is no reason why you couldn't. And some places of where the actual terms can be a little bit throw, throw off-putting uh, off for some disciplines, but actually when you read the explanations, you can make them fit. Um, the problem with a taxonomy, if you make it too broad, you don't, it's not a taxonomy anymore, it's a list and, and it's not helpful. So it's a case of balancing what's what's right for your discipline versus um, how to keep it practical. But yeah, it, it is being used in other disciplines already. Did, did we have another hand up? Oh, at the back there, um, if you wouldn't mind. Thank you. Uh, right, yes, uh, thank you. That was really interesting. As somebody who works in the <clears throat> social sciences area, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> it struck me that um, some of the gaps there in that although you have formal analysis, it does tend to be leaning towards the statistical computational sort of end of things. And, and, and I would want to see something that, you know, um, covered a more an interpretive approach, uh, interpretation, which is, you know, once you've got analyzed the data, then you, you start interpreting it and contextualizing it. And I wondered also about um, literature reviews, because that's a, a big part of a lot of social science work, and it doesn't really seem to feature in here at all. Yeah, I mean, good. <laughs> That's true. Good, good, very good questions. I, I am actually originally a social scientist, and I recognise that we tried to come up with something that was in consent. You know, consent was really difficult to come up with something. Um, it, it is being used like that. We do know that there are some holes. Um, but having said that, it's again, I still go back to it's much better than what's being used in, in a lot of places already. Um, and we, we have looked at whether we could change some of the words without changing the meaning too much, but to include, make it inclusive um, in, the, in the explanations bit as well. We have had that feedback, not the literature review so much, but we've had the feedback about the analysis doesn't suit social sciences, the way it's framed. Um, but it did come from that background. But yeah, really useful feedback. We're hoping to, um, we do have a place for people to give feedback on the, on the, this Casare website, but it's a bit limited at the moment because we haven't had resource to throw at this. Um, and that's an issue that we find generally, which I guess feeds back to the library com comment. Um, funding for things like scholarly infrastructure that affect us all and can support us all is really not there and it's really problematic. So I think having cross-sector funding for some kind of scholarly infrastructure building that's sustainable and, and long-term is really important and we don't have that. So that's another thing. We can manage one super quick question if anyone's really bursting. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, I'll use this. 
it's just yeah. in relation to the funding, because it seems to be that the, uh, this is part of the sort of social infrastructure for cultural change, and there is no route to provide funding. So you're running this part-time with a couple of people, and it could have a major impact. And actually, it's really interesting to hear how the libraries could be affected by it. So um, what ways uh, do you imagine that there could be more um, sustainable funding, uh, or could you have a consortial model type of uh, funding for this type of thing? Who might be able to contribute to that funding? I mean, that's a really good question again. I think things like ORCID, um, even Crossref, all those kinds of things, they're funded very separately and, and they shouldn't be. They should be all connected. And this is another piece for me. This is another piece that would really help if it was connected. I think this all does slightly, for me, fit into the, the sort of Plan S kind of coalition-esque thing as well. It should be about funding scholarly infrastructure that suits science and research. And this is part of it for me. So, I, I, I mean, Plan S is is you know doing a really interesting thing for open access but actually for me it's all part of what Astrid was talking about thinking about a more connected ecosystem and it goes right back to and again this is we're catching up and we're doing something that should have been done ages ago thinking about more digitized research outputs and yeah I think it needs to come from funders it needs to come from governments that's how I think it needs to be for the good, public good but yeah well, yeah, it seems self-evidently good, so, you know, we wish you well, I think, and thank you. Um, thanks. Uh, right, so final speaker this morning, uh, we welcome Heather Cunningham. Um, Heather is Assistant Director of Medical Libraries at the University of Toronto, and is going to talk to us about research libraries as an incubator for science communication and other related things. Thank you, Heather. Well, good morning. Um, so, research libraries for society. I found the theme of this conference very compelling. So, libraries are often referred to as the heart of the university, and so to broaden this vision to also include society was something I found very interesting. So, my talk today is about how the University of Toronto Libraries has been developing programming around science communication and science uh, engagement, situating the library as the central hub for these discussions for not only the university community, but the broader public and society as well. And I'm also gonna tie this in with how this relates to research impact. Um, I was just gonna start with one sentence about the university, since I'm thinking it may not be that well known. So the University of Toronto is quite a large university, uh, very, very research intensive. It has 91,000 students, so that's both graduate students and undergraduates, uh, 14,000 faculty, 7,000 staff, and over 100 librarians, and it has 42 libraries, the university. And so the library that, that is my home is this one, the Gerstein Science Information Center, which is the medical library as well as the largest science library on campus as well. And it's also the largest academic science library in Canada. So it's, it supports the five faculties which make up the, the health science faculties as well as the science departments within the Faculty of Arts and Science. So six years ago, we started a science communication event called Science Literacy Week. So it started off as a grassroots initiative and it was the idea of a student uh, Jesse Hildebrand, who at that time was an undergraduate student studying biology and ecology. And he was extremely passionate about communicating the wonders and the skepticism and the um, achievements as well as the controversies of science to the broader community. 
he definitely saw science communication as being integral to, uh, to society, having an integral role in society, and he definitely saw the library as being uh, the central hub for these discussions. So he envisioned bringing in uh, science researchers, faculty members, and, and scientists to talk about their research within the library, uh, having interactive hands-on displays within the lobby, heavy, having movie screenings, and then discussions afterwards about the, the screenings, um, also uh, book displays, all sorts of different mediums and ways in which uh, the people could come in and interact with science and with scientists. And this is not just for science libraries as well, this would be for all libraries, since everyone in society is touched by science and especially um, medical research. So the third week in September was chosen for Science Literacy Week, um, and it's, this is a week-long event, um, because this is when all the faculty and students have returned after the summer break, and all the orientation events and Frosh Week events of the beginning of September are over, and it's also before everyone is back in the thick of exams and assignments. So it's that, trying to find that sweet spot in between. And so that first year, uh, six years ago, Science Literacy Week was held at 12 of the University of Toronto Libraries, uh, including the Canada Hong Kong Library, the East Asian Studies Library, the OISE Education Library, the Media Commons, as well as a number of the science libraries, including Gerstein. It also took place at two other universities within Toronto, Ryerson University and York University, as well as the public library system. So the Toronto Public Library System, on its Wikipedia page, uh, is um, the, uh, it's the largest neighborhood-based public library system in the world. And so that first year, after just four months of planning, it became a, muni um, a municipal-wide event. Um, and since then, it has grown into a federally supported program, uh, which takes place in 100 cities across Canada, uh, with 800 different events and 200 participating partners. And these are mostly libraries, science centers, observatories, aquariums, places like that. And I just want to emphasize how uh, big an achievement this was. This is a, a good example of impact, something that started in the library and then has become a federally supported program for, uh, for the, the greater public. Uh, and there had never been a science festival at this scale before in Canada. It was a, there was very few science festivals, um, actually. So science festivals seem to have a healthy and robust existence in the UK and Europe and the United States, but there hadn't been one uh, in Canada before. And so the fact that this uh, became a federally su supported program, and it's supported by the Natural Sciences and Engineering Research Council, which is one of the main funding bodies for engineering and science research, is due completely to the the moxie and the chutzpah of, of Jesse Hildebrand, who just through the force of his personality and his um, uh, real passion about communicating science, created, the, uh, created a position for himself with NSERC to be the science communicator and science marketing person, and also to make this, a, as I said, a federally national scale science program. So there is a theme for Science Literacy Week which changes every year. It's usually a broad theme around which uh, libraries and participating centers can develop programming. Um, so um, you can see some of the themes listed here and some of the banners we created. So last year, the theme was uh, about space, space odyssey. Uh, and that was specifically chosen uh, to tie in with a large-scale public interest at that time 
because a Canadian astronaut, David, David Saint-Jacques, was, um, uh, was launching that year, later on in 2018, up to the International Space Station for a six-month stint. And I just saw a headline that he just came back, came back down just, uh, I think, two days ago. So there was a lot of interest in uh, space, um, space exploration last year. And because of that, the Canadian Space Agency became a major sponsor of Science Literacy Week. And there was a video of Saint-Jacques talking about the, um, the importance of science, the importance of science literacy, as well as encouraging people to take part in Science Literacy Week events. And this year, 2019, uh, the theme is, uh, has an oceans theme, and that's to, um, to um, uh, correlate with an, um, an international shoreline cleanup initiative that is taking place at that time in September. So research shows that the public in all its various forms uh, value science festivals for the ability to engage with scientific experts as well as to participate in a range of scientific activities. And so these um, objectives from participants nicely align with the Science Literacy Week objectives of, um, of engaging with the public and providing fun and informative insights into the research being conducted at the university. However, it also has a nice alignment with information literacy principles and science literacy uh, skills as well. And so um, what we've done is we've mapped the ACRL framework, which is the Association of College and Research Libraries, which is part of the American Library Association. Uh, it has a framework for uh, information literacy for higher education, which has six frames, which are listed there on the, on the screen. Um, so I'm gonna pull out three of the frames uh, and map them to the events, uh, which, uh, specific events which have taken place. So one of the frames is information has value. And so one of the most popular events in Science Literacy Week is the self-guided tour of seminal works within the Thomas Fisher Rare Book Library. From Euclid to Einstein, Milestones in the History of Science allows visitors to view some of the most iconic and important science books of all time, such as the first edition of Origin of the Species, original works by Galileo, and, and very uh, seminal science works. There's usually a corpus which are shown every year, and because the, the themes change, like last year it was a science theme, so there was a lot more books on physics and astrophysics that were, that were pulled out. So it shows the value uh, and importance of those original works, which have made possible further advances in research, such as the science, such as the space, uh, the space program. Um, another uh, frame from the um, um, information literacy framework is authority is constructed and contextual. So in 2017, the phrase fake news was very prevalent in the media that year, which led to the 2017 theme being uh, science in a post-truth world. So one event held that year was the Alternative Science Facts Workshop, which was a workshop created by PhD students in the biosciences. So they created and ran this workshop. It was held in the evening, uh, so that people from the public could attend. Um, and it was very well attended. It was mostly undergraduate students and people from outside of the university. And it uh, taught strategies on how to critically analyze what one reads in order to be able to, to discern science facts from spin. And uh, another event uh, that ties in with this frame is a Wikipedia edit-a-thon that we held last February. 
So as a quick side note, one of the offshoots of Science Literacy Week, which is held in September, is that we also uh, create additional programming that we run during the winter semester. So on February 7th, a few days before the United Nations International Day of Women and Girls in Science, we held a Wikipedia edit-a-thon about women in STEM. Uh, Wikipedia is one of the top five most used websites in the world, but less than 20% of the editors identify as female, and consequently, less than 20% of the articles in Wikipedia are about women. And so the goal of this event was to highlight on Wikipedia the significant scientific research, policy, and communication contributions of female scientists and other marginalized individuals. And the end result was a number of articles being edited, over 2,500 words being added, thus contributing to more diverse voices in engagement with and communication of science. And so the, the two events that I've just described uh, are ways to combat or address the deficit model commonly encountered in science communication events, which can often be a one-way flow of information from science experts uh, uh, to, um, um, uh, giving information to what they perceive are, are the empty buckets of, of society or, or the public. So we try and have um, two-way flows of, of information, which nicely segues into the next frame of scholarship as conversation. So uh, a number of events fall readily into this frame, and the one that I've picked out is the human library. So the human library allows you to check out a person in the similar way that you would check out a book. So you can, uh, so we set it up so you can check somebody out for, for 20 minutes and have a, 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 a conversation with them, ask them questions outside of the, you know, the strict confines of a lecture hall. So it was held within the lobby of our, our library. And some examples of our living books were Adiv Paradise, who is a third year astronomy student, a PhD student in, in, in astrophysics, who was talking about what it's like to be an astrophysicist, what do they do, uh, what's the day in the life like. Uh, Kogulan Yoganathan, a fourth year PhD student in immunology, who could speak about his research in genetically uh, engineering the mouse genome, as well as genetically modified organisms in a broader sense. Uh, Samantha Yamin, a PhD student in cell biology who could talk about stem cell research, and a faculty member, Jean-Olivier Richard, who teaches in the Christianity and Culture program and could talk about uh, physics and faith. Plus, we've also had a number of uh, very traditional style lectures in our, in our grand reading room. Uh, uh, faculty members from paleontology, astronomy, uh, uh, parasite ecology. So even though these were very much traditional lectures, they still brought scientists and researchers out from behind the ivory tower paywall and allowed members of the public to hear these lectures in the evening within the library. Um, so in a sense, democratizing the access to publicly funded research and the U of T is a, is a publicly funded university. And it's also, um, and also, um, uh, yes, sorry, I sort of lost my thought there. So when science literacy skills, defined as the knowledge and understanding of science concepts required for personal decision-making and participating in civic and cultural affairs are combined with information literacy skills, one is, critically, one is empowered to critically interpret, verify, and understand science as presented in the media. So science festivals and science engagement events in conjunction with research libraries provide ideal opportunities to combine these two literacy skill sets. 
So I've already talked about research impact with regards to the people attending uh, the events. So from the frame of those presenting, so the faculty members and the, and the, the PhD students, and I, um, so I really like this quote from the UK chief scientist back in 2013, that science is not finished until it's communicated. So the communication to a wider audience is part of the job of being a scientist, so how you communicate is absolutely vital. So communication is a critical indicator in the diffusion of research and its impact. And a number of funding agencies are now requiring applicants to integrate science communication into their research plans. So I created a workshop a year ago on research impact. And research impact is one of those things. It's nebulous. It's hard to define. It means different things to different people. If you're a funder, if you're a research officer, if you're an early career researcher trying to get tenure, and so three of the frameworks that I use are the University of Toronto President's Impact Award, which is an award given to any faculty member um, who has made a significant impact beyond academia, including, for example, on society, culture, or through public engagement. Uh, so the criteria for that can be used as, at the local level for how the university defines research and its impact. At the national level, there is the document there about the humanities and social sciences, and because I'm a medical librarian, I also like the Becker Medical Library model for assessment of research impact. So even though all three of these documents were created by three different organizations with very different intentions behind them, there's actually quite a lot of overlap between them, which is the, has to do with looking at indicators of research impact with regards to public engagement, community involvement, and collaboration. So uh, speaking about your research beyond the academic community, collaborating with librarians and others attending science festivals, and communicating, as I said, uh, publicly funded research beyond, beyond the university, non-quantitative metrics, ways of diffusing your research uh, to have a larger reach. So to conclude, uh, research libraries have an important role in society, and libraries with their long history of providing democratic access to information provide a natural setting for contemporary public engagement with direct ties to increasing uh, the reach and impact of the university's research. So uh, thank you very much and for your time. Thank you. Have we got any questions or observations for our speaker? In that case, Thank you very much, Heather. Uh, thanks to all the speakers today. Enjoy your coffee.